The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. APSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show. We're going to be talking inflation in just a moment. The number came out today, a scarily high number of 5.9%. It's easy to explain. It's mostly electricity. It's mostly petrol and bizarrely hotels. Hotel inflation up 9%. Now, that's a massively positive signal for the hospitality sector. It's implying that there able to push room nights, the cost of a room night up. Not convenient if you're a regular traveller, but however it does give us an indicator of demand in the hotel sector, which is nice to see. Nedbank's got a brand new chief executive. I'll introduce you to him in just a moment and where he's coming from. Sam Altman is returning to OpenAI. What a bizarre move that has uh, become. Uh, and then uh, Wendy Nola, our consumer ninja, joins us and our shapeshifter at half past seven this evening. Got a fabulous message from our shapeshifter a couple of weeks ago and he said, you don't know me from Adam, but I'm an Oxford scholar. I'm coming back to South Africa. My mission is to get products, South African-made products into international markets. His name is Matthew Davey. Looking forward to talking to him at half past seven here on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Uh, Daniel Manel is the chairman of Nedbank on the line to us from Joburg this evening. You've gone back to your old stomping ground to find a replacement for Mike Brown, uh, the former acting chief executive of ABSA, the guy who preceded you, or did he succeed you, certainly around the same time as you, uh, and the deputy CEO of ABSA. Is there just not enough talent around town that you've got to go to the competition to to poach, Daniel? Good evening. <laughs> good evening, Bruce, and good evening to 702 uh, listeners, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, we're obviously delighted to have secured a, a candidate of uh, Jason's caliber and experience uh, with the wealth of experience in banking and financial services that he will bring to NetBank to, to add to the strength of our, our team. So the, the process involved a very extensive, a very thorough a search process uh, which was facilitated by a reputable international firm with strong, uh, with a strong presence in South Africa, and um, we assessed the candidates um, based on the usual process of having long lists and short lists and final short lists against a a success profile for a CEO that the board had developed, a very detailed document. Um, it is against that assessment. Uh, that Jason emerged as the most suitable candidate to be the next leader of of NetBank. There had been some speculation that your former Reserve Bank colleague, Kuben Naidu, was on the shortlist. I'm not going to ask you to go there, but that would have been interesting, having two ex-Reserve Bank colleagues within a private sector bank. Um, but for, for NetBank, it's interesting here because uh, Mike Brown has been chief executive at NetBank for the better part of the last 15 years. And uh, there is, certainly within the first round group, a tradition of growing talent from within. Siswen Kasana was the exception. He was brought in from the outside, but they've reverted to growing from within. Um, why not uh, grow talent from within NetBank? It's got a, a strong uh, executive team. Why bring an outsider in? Uh, Bruce, actually, NetBank has got a very strong record of uh, succession uh, planning and growing its own timber and succession management as such. And it is for that reason that as part of the lineup, 
um, we were able to consider both internal and external candidates who, because of the system uh, that NetBank has been so successfully uh, operating over many years, uh, they were in a position to compete. And of course, you know Jason Quinn. You've uh, you know you you worked with him at at um, at Absa, of course. So that makes that transition fairly easy, I suspect. Jason Quinn, uh, you know, was finance director at Absa during your time as as chief executive there. Well, indeed, I know him well. Although I must say that you know my previous working relationship with him neither advantaged nor disadvantaged him. This was a collective board process which went through the criteria that we had set and assessed his capabilities, uh, his uh, leadership skills, his deep experience, uh, how we think he would fit in in terms of our culture, in terms of being values-driven and a human-centered leader. And that all resonated very strongly with sort of NetBank's purpose and values. And uh, that's how he then emerged as as the most suitable candidate. Daniel Manella, thank you. The chairman at Nedbank, Jason Quinn, leaving ABSA to go to Nedbank. It's an interesting appointment. Jason Quinn is a very, very experienced banker. He was acting CEO um, at ABSA for a while, has served as deputy chief executive and finance director. He's a banker um, who's earned his stripes, 49 years old, chartered accountant by training. Um, and he was joined ABSA, I think, in 2008 is when he first joined there. And we're making the journey across Santon from one end to the other uh, to join the uh, the board and uh, ultimately take over from Mike Brown, who retires next year. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, Daniel Manella talks about the proud tradition from within Nedbank to train people. In about 2003, there was a small banks crisis in South Africa, and we saw the collapse of Sambo. You remember Sambo? Um, and then very soon after that, BOE. And Nedbank stepped into the fray and bailed out BOE. Then there was a run on NetBank. Oh my goodness gracious me. Uh, and that's when Trevor Manuel as finance minister stepped in and guaranteed deposits and everybody calmed down. But part of the acquisition of BOE was to take over two uh, two gentlemen in particular, one called Tom Boardman, who would then become the CEO of NetBank and do a very successful turnaround job there. And he was succeeded by the former finance director of BOE, Mike Brown, who is retiring now. It's a small town um, then, and people do um, make some very big leaps and so, yeah, the big leap happening across Santon in the next couple of, in the next while. I'm sure Jason Quinn will be looking forward to taking up the corner office at Nedbank. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. We'll get to the inflation shock story in just a bit, but I see a new law is going to make it a criminal offence if you fail to report corruption. It's in the parliamentary process, in the corridor somewhere. It seems progressive, but I do wonder, what is the point if we've got a national prosecuting authority that seems to find it hard to nail down even the most open and shut cases? Um, Adrian Rue is the Senior Associate of Forensics at ENS Africa. I think it's a noble piece of legislation. Is it a good piece of legislation? Is it a piece of legislation worth having, Adrian? Good evening, Bruce. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, Just a a quick one. Uh, The new proposed law is actually um, not not a failure to report. We actually have that that obligation already. Uh, The new proposed yeah, the the new proposed law is um, effectively if an organisation fails to stop a particular person associated with it. So let's say an employee, an independent contractor, etc. If that organisation fails to prevent that that organization itself can ultimately be convicted of the offense 
even if they weren't uh, aware of it. Um, and, you know, that's the groundbreaking development that we're looking at. And it would really mirror the, the position they've adopted in the UK, where they've got an existing failure to prevent uh, bribery offence. Um, but just if you don't mind, if we just go one step back, perhaps, and, and it's quite useful to, to look at the broader context. Um, you know, for, for a long time, we really considered corruption a public sector issue. Um, and, you know, what we learned as, as part of the work, particularly from the Zondo Commission, is that we wouldn't have witnessed state capture uh, corruption generally uh, to the extent that we did if we didn't have a degree of complicity from, from the private sector. And that's really where this new development is coming from. What we're trying to do is encourage the private sector to, to play its part in, in reducing corruption. And, you know, an off, off-sighted um, phrase in this regard is in any corrupt transaction, you've got the corruptee sure. and you've got the corruptor. Um, and we really need to tackle this problem from both sides. And, and I think that's what this legislation is trying to achieve. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. That there's obviously this, this new potential uh, offence that, that companies can commit. But coupled to this is a potential out. And that's that the, the defence available to companies is that they had in place adequate procedures for corruption happening in the first place. And what that does is, you know, by including this in this new offence, you're really incentivizing companies to implement anti-corruption programs to do whatever they can to meet this threshold of, of adequate procedures. What would be the potential liability then? I mean, could a chief executive, the chairman of the board, go to jail instead of the original perpetrator if it was found that the company was aware of the corruption being perpetrated? I'm thinking of EOH here, for example, and goodness knows who knew what within that catastrophe 10 years ago. Uh, but if somebody had committed uh, a, a crime within EOH and the CEO may have or may not have been aware of it, um, could that CEO go to jail or could the chair go to jail? Could members of the board go to jail or would it just be a monetary sanction? What's uh, What does the law propose? Uh, absolutely, Bruce. And I think it's important to uh, keep that from what this new uh, offence is trying to introduce. So this isn't changing the existing regime where individuals that engage in corrupt practices can be can be prosecuted in, in their personal capacity. That, that's not changing what we're trying to do is, in addition to that, and, and we'll, we must continue to prosecute you know, individuals that, that are um, guilty of these crimes, but what we're doing here is, is we're putting the, uh, the company itself in the crosshairs, and we're saying the company can be convicted, and that will come, you know, what will come with that is, is a fine um, and you know, potentially significant consequences. You know, if, if a company is convicted itself, it may be blacklisted from doing business. Sure. It's a huge reputational issue, et cetera. So this is about trying to get the whole organization to get on side, to, to implement the, the procedures that it needs to, um, you know, to prevent this from happening. And, and obviously we want to prevent, but also if it does happen, you know, it, at least we, we can potentially not go after the good actors. You know, there might be very ethical companies where one rogue actor has gone and done something and they might be able to avoid liability provided they can sure. point to their exactly. you know, existing controls. I mean, this surely should apply then across all companies, not just listed companies. It should apply across private companies. It should apply uh, across all levels of company, including, I would think, state-owned companies, surely. Absolutely, and, and the wording that we're currently looking at now, and it is at quite an advanced stage in the legislative process, it would apply to uh, all members of the private sector as well as incorporated state-owned entities. So, so the net is incredibly broad as it's currently a phrase, and it, w- it would cover not only 
listed entities, you know, all sorts, private, private companies as well. What about government departments? I mean, if you're the director general of a government department and there are people within your department who are guilty of corrupt practices, are you liable for that as well? Or does that fall outside of the ambit of the law here? Well, I mean, that would require a careful look at the facts. And, and, and this is where the devil's going to be in the details. If, if we're talking about incorporated entities versus, uh, you know, arms of state, etc. Um, and, and again, there we, we might have sufficient provisions already in, in existing legislation to, to go after those. Um, particular organs or, or individuals. In a country where our prosecution rates are suboptimal, I think that's the, the best way of putting it, um, does this legislation make the slightest bit of difference about the, in the fight against corruption? Well, I think, Bruce, you know, it's, it's firstly, it's quite early to say, but why I'm personally quite excited about the, the particular direction we're going in and seeing this sort of legislation emerging is it really encourages proactive conduct on the part of at least the private sector in particular. So before we even get to the point where we're worrying about particular, uh, uh, potential uh, convictions, we, we're encouraging conduct because, you know, if, if any compliance team within an organization is looking at their risk landscape and they're going, how can we mitigate our legal risk? Well, we need to implement an anti-corruption compliance program. And by doing so, there's going to be a, a net ripple effect that, that goes out into the market because fewer incidents of, of corruption should ultimately occur. So Whilst I, I totally take the point, and you know that's a whole other discussion, I suppose, on on the level of uh, prosecution we're seeing, this sort of uh, legislation that encourages proactive conduct to to mitigate these bad outcomes, I think, should be celebrated. Thank you, Adrian Rue, who is a senior associate in forensics at ENS Africa. Thanks for joining us on the Money Show. 702. Bruce is on the Money Show. Monday, absolutely convinced, no rate hike tomorrow. Then today, a bigger-than-expected increase in CPI, taking inflation last month to 5.9%. This is like the relegation zone in football. You're very close to being kicked out of the league. And uh, the Reserve Bank has got a target, of course, of keeping inflation between 3 and 6%. And we are at risk of seeing inflation spike out unexpectedly. Uh, the main culprits, higher food, fuel and hotel prices. Until this number, I was pretty certain there would not be a rate rise. I see stand-up economist Kevin Ling's pointing out today that the Reserve Bank will, however, be worried about the persistence of high food inflation, the potential for second-round effects. He is not expecting a rate increase tomorrow. Auntie Pai is a senior economist at PwC and he's on the line to us from Joburg. Um, Has this changed a view that you might have on interest rates, Auntie, at all? No, not really, uh, Bruce, because I think one of the interesting things here um, is that if you look at the core inflation, um, that seems to be abating quite nicely. It's now right up below that midpoint. And perhaps uh, if you look at what caused the increases, so especially on the food side, uh, of course, it's this uh, virtue that uh, we see in terms of eggs that have spiked up. And we've had, obviously, some of the problems that we've had in vegetables, especially potatoes, which are the dry season. So it seems that these are mere shocks, at least on the food side, rather than actually permanent issues um, that we are facing. Although, of course, there are other risks that we want to think about. Yeah, and what are the risks? What are the big ones that we can see? Because there are always risks in the market that we can't see. I kind of look at food inflation, and it's annoyingly very persistent and high, and that's a worry for every single household. But fuel inflation seems to be abating. We've we've had the shock of electricity, and we're likely to get further big electricity increases into the future. Uh, I wonder what comes and what goes, what ebbs and flows in the inflation calculation into the future that will inform the Reserve Bank's decision. 
Look, I, I think one of the problems now that we're facing is what we're trying to get at in terms of the logistics uh, problems that we have. Uh, what we are hearing now is that some of the orders that have been expected, especially over this uh, very important season where people spend, might actually not be on the shelves. And that is likely, if that, if that happens, it's likely, of course, to have pressure in terms of, um, of, you know, of prices themselves. Remember, whenever there is a shortage, you tend to see some, um, you know, some increases in prices. And that is something that is not very easy to tell how long that is going to be. So it could actually carry over perhaps into the first world. So I suspect logistical problems are going to be weighing in very, very heavily uh, in the hearts, uh, in the minds of, uh, of the Monetary Policy Committee, because that actually will then get into the core inflation where we'd be hoping that that's stabilizing nicely because those are less volatile prices by, uh, more than food and, 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 uh, and energy and petrol, as we were talking about. So that's probably one major area. But of course, you know, there's been comforting news that's coming out of the U.S. in terms of inflation starting to abate there. So that's also comforting. So it's probably this logistics thing is one major area that's going to be of major concern. Thank you to the PwC South Africa senior economist, Auntie Pai, this evening. Not expecting, not really expecting a rate hike tomorrow, but certainly not expecting any cuts in the first half of next year. I think that's pushed. Um, this this number pushes out the likelihood of cuts later than we might have hoped for. Um, so, yeah, inflation and interest rates remain high for the foreseeable future. The Money Show. The Markets. To Chris Stewart we go. Chris Stewart is a portfolio manager at 91. And today's market action was really interesting, Chris Stewart. I mean, a weakening currency, a rapidly weakening currency. And I'm not sure that's because the rest of the world is is flying and we're struggling and uh, the, uh, the we're not going to get an interest rate hike. So, therefore, there isn't that sort of underpin. Or this is the, the murmurings of NHI being likely to be passed through the National Council of Provinces without any proper over. Site, it's making markets a bit nervous again on the currency. What's your view? Yeah, good evening, Bruce. Uh, I think all of the above. I think you pointed out some of the some of the key things. Weakness. It's not really a, a global risk-off phenomenon. We've seen uh, some weakness in commodity prices on the back of a materially stronger dollar, uh, and that I guess you know idiosyncratically is 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 weak for the for the rand but uh, I, I think there's also some sort of country specific uh, other factors uh, that you've indicated that are driving the rand a little bit weaker today uh, and you know as you've indicated an inflation number that disappointed somewhat uh, which means the likelihood of the shot in the arm provided to the domestic economy through the ability to start to uh, reverse the tightening of monetary policy that we've seen is uh, pushed out at best. Um, and, uh, you know, I think your assessment that being pushed out into the second half of calendar 2024, based on what we know uh, right now, uh, is probably an appropriate one. Yeah. Uh, Old Mutual got a nine-month update today. How are they holding up in the face of the trials and tribulations of the world? Yeah, fairly similarly to how they were holding up in the first half of the year. So excluding China, which has uh, created some noise in the base, the uh, sales within their, you know, their life annualized premium equivalent sales uh, up at about 13% year on year. That was tracking at about 14% in the first half, so a, a very modest slowdown. The business remains in net cash outflows, so about 11 billion uh, net cash outflows for the nine-month period. It was at about minus seven in the first half, uh, so that trend has continued. Um, persistency issues, they, they uh, suffered some persistency issues in the first half, uh, particularly within their mass foundation business, and that's basically people taking policies 
but uh, not uh, not being able to afford to pay their premiums and those policies uh, potentially lapsing. Now, they, they indicated the first half of the year they were taking some remedial actions uh, to try to increase persistency within the book. They hadn't changed their assumptions with regard to persistency, which would have you know, potential uh, financial implications for the embedded value of the group. Uh, they haven't changed at the interim stage and they haven't indicated uh, at the moment uh, as to whether they are going to have to uh, change that uh, for the full year. I know there's a few analysts out there expecting an impact of more than a billion rand uh, through persistency changes uh, at year end. They're going to remain uh, wait and see and, 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 and uh, probably announce at the time of their full year results uh, whether they've needed to take uh, incremental action there. And then within their uh, lending operations, very muted lending growth at about 2%, which, you know, given that they are an unsecured lender lending predominantly into the lower LSMs, uh, that's hardly surprising. Most uh, lenders into the lower income segments of the South African population have indicated a fairly high degree of conservatism at the moment, given uh, some of the pressures that consumers are under from an affordability point of view. So no real surprises there and no further news in, in the brief uh, look that I had uh, of that trading update. No no further news on the development of their uh, much-anticipated banking business uh, that they uh, are spending money on and will be rolling out over the course of next year and the year after. They were once the controlling shareholders of Nedbank, which today announced the appointment of a new chief executive, not from inside, uh, but from outside. Jason Quinn, consummate banker, accountant by training, has been acting CEO at APSA, been finance director at APSA for many years. It's a it's an interesting choice for them. Yeah, so someone on the line is probably going to contradict me, but uh, I, I believe he's the first uh, person ever to be chief executive of two of the four big uh, four South African banks. So hats off to Jason. He'll yeah, be taking over true. from Mike Brown good, good uh, in, in May, odd, May odd of next year. Uh, Mike's retirement had been, uh, you know, much expected and well announced. There was a, uh, a an orchestrated uh, succession process taking place both within and without. Uh, Jason had been the interim CEO of the ABSA group and had missed out on the top job there. He's now got the top job at Nedbank and uh, I'm sure he's delighted. Uh, Tom Boardman, um, it wasn't a big four bank, but Tom Boardman was CEO of BOE, then went in uh, and became CEO of Nedbank as well. But yes, I take your point. It's not a top four. Not a top four. Uh, that's fine print, Bruce. I'm afraid <laughs> BOE was never a big four. So it, was a, it was a bank. A long time ago. <laughs> Chris Stewart, thank you. Chris Stewart is a portfolio manager at 91. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, happening in the world of business and money today, Jason Quinn, if you missed it earlier, Jason Quinn, the former acting CEO of APSA, FD of APSA for many years, be poached by Nedbank to become its new chief executive. Uh, and in terms of executive moves out and about, uh, big reversals happening at OpenAI as well. Astonishing change of tack. Just five days after it all started and after uh, endless analysis, of course, Sam Altman going back to his old job as the chief executive of the chat. GPT creator OpenAI. There'll be a new board. Surprise, surprise. Staff had threatened to walk if the board didn't go. Uh, so the board has decided to go. The staff will stay. Altman will come back. Um, and uh, they demanded, of course, that he come back, that he get rehired. We still don't know why he was fired in the first place, but um, we, we kind of get the sense that they didn't like disclosures from the CEO. They wanted more transparency. And there was a statement which implied that somehow he'd not been honest with him. He'd not 
not been consistently candid in his communications, whatever that means. Um, the, but that's all been reversed now. So the world of being an executive is fast and furious. That much is most certainly true. Coming up on the next Money Show, we're going to be doing the Monetary Policy Committee view on inflation and interest rates. It's going to be an interesting call. We've got Warren Ingram at Galileo Capital, who's going to give answers as to why your portfolios perform badly and what to do next. And then top analysis of a cheeky little startup from Pavlo Fatidis at Auric Business Accelerator that wants access to new markets. Pablo with tips next time on The Money Show. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. And that Money Show, of course, uh, is uh, every day between 6 and 8 p.m. APSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, South African manufacturing in all kinds of trouble. I mean, you fly in over the factories and it looks like there's a hive of activity. But South Africa's growth numbers are dreadful. The shortage of electricity is catastrophic. The level of skills in our economy are not great. The huge efforts to try and get more of what we need and use made in South Africa. That way you create jobs and new opportunities, you generate growth, you generate more taxes and the economy should thrive. Countries that make stuff are more successful than countries that don't. I mean, it's a fundamental reality of the world. Grant Patterson is on a mission. He's the deputy chair of the Localization Support Fund. You guys have been around, I think, now since about 2021, 2022. Abraham Patel's the chair, you the deputy chair. But this is a private sector initiative. Grant, good evening. Good evening, Bruce. Yes, that's right. It's a private company. Uh, It's been around about that time that you mentioned, and I joined it about 18 months ago as the deputy chair. Uh, And and what's the goal? I mean, the the big, hairy, audacious goal here is to raise money and help people start manufacturing facilities, factories. Yes, we are razor-sharp focused. Um, We are targeting, assisting uh, manufacturers who manufacture locally, and supply either by export or for local consumption. And we are very specifically focused on helping those factories with expertise. And what we do with the money uh, is pay for the expertise uh, to, to assist them. Okay, give me a practical example of how this might work. I am a supplier to, uh, let's, let's pick Edcon. You were there. You would have been, I think, motivated by that switch from almost everything being imported to most of it being locally manufactured. I think that's your first experience of localization. How might it work? Yes, yeah, so um, let's use that example. And it's one of the sectors that we focus on is the textile sector. So um, you may be a factory that is uh, manufacturing jeans, um, for Edgars, um, <clears throat> and you are trying to source the right cotton material, dyed properly, and perhaps set, sent it out for washing. And you've got some companies around you who look like they may be able to assist you, but they're not big enough, or they don't have the right uh, quality controls, or they don't have enough finance, or they don't have the skills. So what you would do then is, with, along, along with the manufacturer or the group of manufacturers, you would approach the fund, uh, and you would ask for our assistance, and we would send in industrial engineers and textile experts and dyeing experts and supply chain experts to come and help you. Uh, how much money is available for this thing? I mean, is there a bottomless pit of cash share? What are you banking on making available? Uh, we are currently sitting on a fund of, a, uh, I think it's 200 million rand. Okay. Um, so, so it's a substantial fund, um, and it's not a fund which we invest expecting returns. So it's not that type of investment. We don't do asset finance. We don't do loans. We don't charge interest. 
Um, we uh, source the experts and pay them directly to system manufacturing. Uh, and then how do I access this? If I've got this big idea, this big, uh, I want to expand, I want to grow, I've got a potential client, but I'm not big enough to um, to support them and I need some help to grow. How would I get my hands on some of, well, how would I access the the, the use of that, some of that 200 million rand? So, so let's, let's do it by way of uh, another example. In an industry which uh, we are focusing on a lot, which you can imagine uh, there are huge opportunities in, and that that is supplying the recapitalization of the transmission and distribution network for ESCOM and renewable energy production. So that's a, an industry we're focused on. Let's say you, you have an inverter manufacturing business, and this is a real live case. Um, you would um, uh, log on to our website, which is www.lsf-sa.co.za, or you just Google our name. Uh, on that website is sitting a request for assistance form. You would download that form, you would fill it in, and you'd email it to us. And that would be the start of the process. We then open up a a project. Uh, we start going. Through, we'll contact you. We'll start going through the project. We'll put together the broader plan and budget get it approved, and then uh, the funds start flowing and the expertise start arriving. Is it a one-week process, a one-month process, or a six-month process? It sounds quite, uh, and I'm guessing the governance around this has got to be really tight. You've got to be ensure that it's completely passes every smell test that, that can be passed. Yes, yeah, so the governance is tight, um, <clears throat> but we, uh, it's a, we are a small group of people. We've got a wonderful head of fund uh, whose name is Tommy, who's been with us for, for uh, almost two years now. Uh, her and her team will process this. Let me let me say private sector speed. If that's the question, <laughs> um, there is governance. We of course, it's the the the, the companies are not for, for profit, and it is registered as a PBO, public benefit organisation. So we 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 have to treat these funds with great respect, but we move quickly. Uh, we're very clear on who we assist and who we don't. So you'll get your answer very quickly out of us. Where's the money come from? The money comes donated by companies, and so the initial donation came from CCBSA, which is the Coke bottler whom you will know. Um, we, we have just recently got some funds from Air Liquid, who are a manufacturer mm-hmm. oxygen for, for Sato. Uh And we are really open, and we'll start searching for donations for other companies, companies who, who have an interest in, in investing in local manufacturing but can't do it in their own supply chains or don't want to do it themselves because they don't have the expertise. So we intend to turn ourselves into a sustainable organization who's uh, going to be you know, permanently uh, investing these, these type of funds. And so this is donor funding. There's no direct benefit for those that donate other than you are helping create an ecosystem that is more sustainable than perhaps it is right now. Correct. There's no benefit. In fact, that's part of the requirement of being a public benefit uh, organization. For instance, we publish everything. So if we do a study or we uh, discover some IP, everything's published on our website and is available to anyone. Um, um, So it's definitely intended on on helping the country. And of course, an organization who perhaps, um, you know, wanted things kept secret, then we wouldn't work with them. Okay, thank you very much to Grant Patterson, the Deputy Chair of the Localization Support Fund, 200 million rand available. He explained how that you can begin to access the support that it's got to offer. He's Deputy Director of the Localization Support Fund. Google will be your best friend on this one. And yeah, money available from the private sector to help private sector companies be better. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702.
Uh, one of the great ironies, of course, of the battery-powered cars, and incidentally, I saw one in Cape Town this morning, one of the cars that uh, Toby was talking about uh, in our tech with Toby on Monday, those stubby little Volvos, the XC40, that's uh, the recharge ones. And uh, yet, the, the idea of having these rechargeable vehicles is incredibly sexy, and it's wonderful because you feel so good. Low no maintenance, all these things almost makes up for the price tag, which is still outrageous. But the way that you are refueling this car, topping up the battery, is ultimately still coming from burning fossil fuels because South Africa's primary source of energy remains burning coal, boiling water, taking the steam, and, of course, powering generators from that. Imagine if you could have charging stations that were not reliant on the ESCOM grid. Well, that's the idea of Andres Malarbe. He's the co-founder of Zero Carbon Charge on the line to us from Cape Town this evening. It's all based in Vormeranstadt, this initial one, uh, Andres, in Northwest Province. Why Vormeranstadt? What is happening there that makes this the epicenter of renewable energy charging stations? Uh, good, good evening, Bruce. Good evening, listeners. Uh, Bruce, it's, uh, it's actually a question of merit. Uh, the Northwest Province and the town of Omranstadt were uh, so enthusiastic and they got all the approvals done and they were our first approved site. And we decided we needed a, a technical feasibility site. It's a great distance from Johannesburg. It's on a really busy road to Kimberley and onto Cape Town. Uh, and we have a, a very dynamic landlord. So we decided to, to build our first one there. It, 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 practical, it all makes sense. What's the big plan here, Andres? It's pointless having one recharge station on the route to Cape Town, of course, ultimately, because these blooming things, as wonderful as they are, do require regular juicing up. Yes, the, Bruce, the, the idea is exactly that, uh, to have a network. Uh, you know, if you or I get into a car, we have to be able to drive anywhere we want to within reason. And our plan is to have 120 stations, which would give us uh, which cover would, which would cover 18,000 kilometers of African highways, basically all the ends down to the N18 and a couple of the big R's. And it means that no matter where you drive, from Cape Town to the Zim border or from the Namibian border to, to, to Durban or to PE or to East London, you would never be more than 150 kilometers from an, what we have, what we have, which are ultra-fast charging stations, which would top up your car in 50 to 20 minutes. Okay, so that's, uh, I mean, again, that's one of the great constraints, of course, is if you're an impatient driver, as, as green as you might want to be, 15 to 20 minutes is, is quite a long time for a topper. But look, these things are improving all the time. Uh, where's the money coming from? Because you don't get to build 120 solar powered charging facilities spaced at 150 kilometer intervals um, out of fresh air, unfortunately. This requires some, I'm assuming, very significant funding. It does. Uh, we are in quite a couple of good conversations with DFIs, local and foreign, uh, and, some, and some large private investors. Uh, so we will roll it out piecemeal. You know, we're going to build for at least two years. It'll take us to 2025 to get our network done. Uh, but we are, we are been quite successful at raising money, and we are quite confident that we will be able to build out the whole network in two years' time. Uh, renewable energy, I'm assuming it's all solar. How do you, I mean, well, I look at the, the experience, for example, of the cell phone operators and the fact that they've had to not only lock up the batteries and, I don't know, put barbed wire around the solar panels, but actually appoint security guards to look after the sites because they're incredibly vulnerable, especially 24-7, uh, you know, around around the clock. It's, a, it's, a quite a, it's quite a big ask in terms of securing the tech, which is very attractive to long-fingered thieves. 
We, um, some, a lot, a half our sites are at, at fairly well-known uh, destinations like, like large farm stores. Uh, so there's quite a lot of security to start with and, and quite a lot of uh, kind of inherent traffic and people around the space. But we have a very, a very, a very serious and elaborate security plan around in terms of physical security and, and, and personnel security for these sites, obviously because they are attractive and we want our customers to feel safe. But it's, you know, the, the, the rural networks are really well developed in terms of, of, of cameras and, and, and armed response and stuff. So we, we're really confident it's going to be fine. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it rolls out, Andres Malarba, the co-founder of Zero Carbon Charge. We're getting a huge number of proposals from people saying, oh, there's an investment here and there's an investment there. And it's impossible for us to quantify the investments in total. But you do get a sense that there's an an evolutionary revolution, if you like, happening in solar charging and in in the solar space, not only in terms of rooftop solar. Coming flying into Oratambo this morning was astonishing as you come in over Boxburg and the big shopping centre there, uh, the roofs are covered in solar panels. The nation is covered in solar panels, increasingly so. Um, and that's ultimately what is going to resolve the worst effects of load shedding is local production of electricity. But we need industrial scale electricity as well. The distribution of electricity into the future is going to be very important. But yes, so when you've got entrepreneurs like Andres Malarba having a look at the problem and saying, how do we do this effectively and differently? It's quite a motivating and inspiring task of entrepreneurs responding to a national crisis. After Eyewitness News, Dr. Graham Codrington, he's a futurist, he's a partner tomorrow today. We're going to be looking at the developments of crucial lab-grown commodities, stuff we take for for granted. So not the soy-based meat products that very unappealing to look at, but apparently people say they taste fine, but it's lab-grown stuff, actually using tissues from live animals and then growing meat in laboratories. I mean, not everybody's rump steak, um, but it's, you could, it can't be a cup of tea, you see. But it's not everybody's idea of a, a fun way to make to have a steak, but it maybe become the more humane way of the future. Um, the bears are not going to like the fact that diamonds are being made in labs more and more. I remember chatting to Nicky Oppenheimer once a long time ago and saying, how worried are you about lab-grown diamonds? He goes, oh, people don't want those. You want the real thing that's been you know, born out of the earth and under huge pressure and the compacted carbon. I, I, I wonder if consumers said that discerning. Uh, Consumer Ninja Wendy Nola with us um, on your car and insurance and what the small print means. This is where I'm I'm really worried about people who don't get good advice when they buy insurance and they just do it with a couple of clicks and they're not necessarily paying attention to the minuscule T's and C's. Please pay attention to that. And then an entrepreneur who wants to make sure that South African products are available in every corner of the globe. We'll talk to Matthew Davey. That's coming up off by seven. I'll shape you to tonight on what's been a busy Wednesday. 702. Bruce is on the money show. This is the money show. I am Bruce Whitfield. The big story this evening Ned Bank has poached the former acting ABSA chief executive Jason Quinn uh, to become its new chief executive. It's an interesting appointment bringing an outsider in to do it. First Rand's always been the proponent of growing your talent from the inside. They broke ranks once and brought Sizwen Kwasana in, and he spent some time at the First Rand group. Since then, they've reverted back to growing their talent from within. The latest, of course, is Mary Vilakazi, who is succeeding. 
uh, who's going to become the next chief executive at First Rand. Uh, she came from within Momentum, so they're also kind of within the family, if you like, and had been within the group for the last five years. Uh, the decision to go to a competing bank is really interesting as well. And as Chris Stewart, our market commentator, pointed out this evening, it does make Jason Quinn the only person in South African history to therefore become chief executive of two big four banks. It's an interesting observation, bringing us very neatly to Eyewitness News now at exactly 7 o'clock. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On Nights 2.7 and 106 FM. Dr. Graham Codrington in studio. Chat to him in just a moment. Usually, I mean, certainly in the olden days, Graham was off by now. He was like off on a beach. He'd clock out mid-November, maybe early November. I can't remember. But he certainly used to take a lot of time off in the olden days. How's the world changing for futurist Graham Codrington? We're also going to talk about lab-grown meat and lab-grown diamonds and stuff. But I just want to catch up with him and his thinking of the world of work. Wendy Nola on car insurance and then at half past seven, uh, form, uh, a Rhodes Scholar. You can, you're never a former Rhodes Scholar unless you get kicked out, I suppose. But Rhodes Scholar uh, Matthew Davey is joining us. And he started a business called Tunnel, T-U-N-L. What education at Oxford and you still can't spell. Anyway, um, and it's to help small businesses grow and to expand their footprints and to expand their markets. His mission is to take awesome South African product and get it into global markets. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Business Unusual brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Welcome, Dr. Graham Codrington. Are you on leave? Because you used to be on leave by now, I'm sure, in the olden days, before that thing called COVID. Yes, I think COVID has reconfigured things. I think, uh, especially in South Africa, we work later into the year these days. But yes, I I used to try and beat the builders uh, to to (laughs) holiday uh, down on the coast. Um, And and, I mean, the idea being that you you work blooming hard, you you travel extensively, you do lots of global travel, and you miss out on a lot of school stuff, you miss out a lot of family stuff. So actually, take proper downtime. What is the message that you put on your email? (laughs) Yes, people have tried to contact me while I'm uh, away, get an interesting message, because I realized a number of years ago that it's no good going away if you're not away, if your your email follows you, your WhatsApp follows you. So I put an out of office uh, and this will be going on on the 15th of December this year. And it says, uh, thank you for your email. I have received it, but I will never read it. Uh, I am away until whatever date, 12th of January, and on my return, I will delete my inbox without accessing it. And what if, gives if, you the yeah. courage to do that, though? Because very few people have got the guts to go, well, I mean, yes, you work for yourself, you are the boss, so you can do whatever yeah. you like. But what gives you the, because in there may be a 12-week cruise ship tour of the Caribbean, all expenses paid for you <laughs> and your family. Lovely, wouldn't it? No, I mean, yes. there could no, be something fabulous in there. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that not too many people are making those sorts of decisions at that time of year, so I'm taking a chance. Um, but on, on, on the other hand, when people ask me, but what happens about the work that you miss? The answer is, well, the great thing is I don't know. Because I literally don't check my inbox. I literally delete it. First year I did that, took real guts Mm. to just look at a a few thousand actually emails sitting there. You know most of them are spam. You know most of them, probably the person who was asking you a question has already dealt with it themselves anyway. But there might have been a job or two in there. I'm hoping that those clients will 
uh, indulge me and on the 12th of January send me the repeat and many do. So I do get flooded on my first day back at the office because people say, ah, you're back. Now it's sort this out for me today. Um, but on the other hand, if they get irritated that I'm prepared to put boundaries in place and then they say, we'll never work with Graham again. I probably didn't want to work for them in the first place. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's the again the courage of conviction and knowing what what is good for you. And does that also play out? Because I think I saw on socials today that you were at an HR conference, mm. big HR conference, about the, putting in those boundaries. Because I mean, yeah. I don't know if anybody is able to clock off anymore. In the olden yeah. days, you go to the factory, there was a card, you'd put it into the machine, and ping, it would go in. You'd go into the factory, you'd come out, yeah. ping, and then you would be done. Yeah, I mean, it'd be horrible horrible day but you were done you knew that there was a boundary between work and home and that boundary has become very very blurred look it was getting blurred already but COVID just completely removed any of yeah. those boundaries you know so working from home uh, you you're always at home upside but you're always at work downside mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think we've sorted that out yet. There's very bad back-to-work policies and back-to-the-office policies going around at the moment. But I really do believe that we as human beings, we enjoy it when something is done. Even if it's a difficult task, you, something needs to be fixed in the house and you eventually get around to fixing it and it's done. And you look at it and go, ah, oh, job well done. You know, we watch a sports game and it's, intense and brutal and everything and then it's finished and mm. there's a winner or a loser and I just think it's maybe even more so with senior leaders it's never done your inbox is never cleared your to-do list is never finished you can never just sit back and go oh that was great everything's done and enjoy it so because that won't happen on its own we've got to make it happen and uh, we can make it happen at the end of a day we can make yeah. it happen at the end of the week and for me, it's the end of the year. I mean, is anybody thinking about the consequences, the long-term consequences of being on 365 days a year, 24-7, and just being never disconnected from the world of work? Bruce, I think if I, you, you know this, uh, the answer to this question as well as I do, as well as every single senior leader and probably everybody uh, in the country. We didn't survive covid we, we did well during COVID. Almost everybody, I know different industries, but almost everybody exceeded their expectations. Found, found a way to manage. Found a way to manage and kind of impressed ourselves. And then last year, all the senior execs decided, ah, thank you, new baseline. And can we stretch you for another 10% next year? We never recovered. So people didn't take their time off. That was my big mistake two years ago. I didn't take time Did off not? and totally regretted it for a year. Um, and so last year I did it and this year we'll do it again. But we haven't reset. We haven't recovered. Um, we've just gone back to battle again. Imagine doing the World Cup final every other day, um, you know, for four years. And I think that's where we are. I think we are going to see people burn out and, and flame out. I, I'm really, really worried uh, uh, about uh, people. And I bet you that if you asked for the next week, just if, uh, it would make boring radio, but if you tried it and said, are you exhausted? I think the answer would be yes, 100%. Uh, yes. I, I was speaking to somebody at an event this morning and I was just yeah. saying, you know, she, I identify as exhausted. Yeah, that yeah. was a line. Great line. <laughs> and and had big bags on the horizon. And yeah. I, I, I could relate. And it, this can't be sustained. And no. exhausted people make mistakes. Exhausted people have fuzzy thinking. Exhausted people make bad financial decisions. Exhausted people commit fraud. 
because not because they're bad people. They're just not concentrating. And uh, I, I honestly think there's a lot of things that all add up to just say, let's not run this country on fumes. Well, I, I, I don't think it's just this country. I've just got, no, I've got, no, a, I've got a very right. real sense, actually, that the world is pushing itself to extremes. Yeah, and making big mistakes, I think. Is the mistake happening in the world of artificials, I wonder? When I say artificials, I mean, a diamond grown in a laboratory is a diamond. It's compressed carbon, it's yes. sparkly, it's yes. real, it cuts other diamonds. I mean, it is a real diamond to all yes. intents and purposes. It's just made far more quickly than the billions of years it took um, to, to make it in the, under the, the pressure of the earth. We'll talk about diamonds in a moment, but talk to me about lab-grown meat because yeah. we've been through the trend of trying to make soya taste like meat and that's yeah. fairly short-lived. Uh, and, but there is this, this big trend of trying to make meat consumption more humane. And I think it's quite a noble activity. I wonder if it'll ever really catch on. Well, I think it will, uh, and I certainly think it will with the younger generation, if not everybody else as well. Uh, we've we've broken every record in the book with climate change this year. Had the hottest year, not just on record, but as far yeah. as we can ascertain in in, in one hundred twenty five thousand years. We just last week tipped over the two that two degree yes. mark for two days, uh, average global temperatures. So this is this is happening now. This is not future predictions. And one of the big contributors to that is animal farming, especially cows. <laughs> methane can, can, gas. Can cows produce methane from both ends. Yes. Um, and there are yeah. efforts to sort of there's an aspila there's a there's a good yeah, that, uh, there's a seaweed correct. that you there's can be, things but, that you can do. But, but if you pull all that seaweed out from underneath the ocean, I wonder what the consequence would that be to feed the cows so they don't get so windy. I mean, it's and, and, and three thousand liters of water per yeah. hamburger patty and kind of things over the course of the life of the cow. So, and also at, just the process of growing meat in in big feedlots and stuff is not pleasant. And, and then there's the humanity of what we actually do with yeah. animals and how things work. And some farmers do better than others, and we sure. know this. But we now have the technology. We understand. Uh, stem cell technology. So that's the basis of it. And if, if people want to understand the simple version, I'm not a doctor or scientist, but the simple version is you take a box of Lego and you can turn it into anything you like. Yes. Uh, the Lego, the individual Lego piece doesn't know what it's going to become, but it could be part of a Star Wars starship. It could be part of a house. It could be part of a police car. And you and your body have stem cells. They're produced all the time and they don't know, am I going to become an eyeball? Am I going to become an eyelash? Am I going to become skin on, on, on the inside of the palm of your hand? And those stem cells need a piece of instruction to come in and that's what RNA and DNA does. So we can extract stem cells from cows. We then grow these stem cells. Just think of it as a big mass of something. Yeah. Then you give an instruction via DNA to say, I'd like you to be a rump steak. <laughs> you know, I'd like you to be a cow's backside. Yeah. And these things, again, um, this is not a scientific explanation. Apologies to the medical specialists and the scientists listening. But it, it, the stem cells then say, ah, thank you. Now we know what we want to become. All the little Lego bits put themselves together and there is a rump steak. And right now it's not quite there. It's a little bit too expensive uh, to do. But a few years from now, you're going to blind taste a, a rump steak. The point is, it is a rump steak yes, on a cow. Absolutely. It just didn't need a few years it, on a real cow sitting on a farm. And it's throat cut to, in order to, to get onto correct. a plate. Yeah. So it's not fake. It's exactly like those diamonds, as you said. Today, lab-built diamonds or lab-created diamonds cannot be distinguished from those out of the ground. Even 
the most specialist diamond cutter would not tell the difference. And it would be very weird then for somebody to say, I definitely want uh, some child's slave to dig my diamond out. Otherwise, it's not worth anything. You go, um, uh, maybe you have to re- re- you know, check yourself there just a little bit. And I think that's going to be the same with meat. Uh, yeah, I mean, the world of diamonds is really interesting. I mentioned earlier, I chatted to Nikki Oppenheimer years ago the last time, and they, they were doing interesting things. And I said, how much of a threat are lab-grown diamonds? He goes, no, people will always want real diamonds. That's why we put the forever mark on the De Beers diamond, because then you know that it's been ethically sourced and it's been properly mined. It's at least two carats. You can't see the forever mark because it's invisible to the naked eye but it's there and you know that it's gum from under the ground that's proper and real and some people i think will want those but the vast majority of us it's sparkly and it's bright and it looks pretty and it's uh, and and maybe those people who who want that and are prepared to pay for the cost of doing that and even more for the cost of doing it ethically then let them pay more and tell everybody this is now a genuine forever diamond. Let them do the same with their real cow meat. The rest of us won't know the difference and we'll eat the lab-grown stuff. Uh, and uh, I think we'll enjoy it. And the future is coming faster than ever before. Uh, this is already here. Uh, it is, it, it's not cheap. It's not easily available, but it is going to happen. And I suppose people need to be thinking about in their industry, what is the thing that at the moment feels like it's exclusive and takes, is difficult to produce. What happens when it's not? And uh, that's the bit of business unusual we wanted to talk about tonight. Graham Connerton, thank you. Futurist and partner at Tomorrow Today. Wendy Nola, Consumer Ninja, standing by. She's up next. When business challenges rise, so do we. Because yeah, hey, kuningi. Luckily, Bidvest Bank is a bank built out of business. So, customizable services come naturally. And once we get to know you, your ambitions, and the seasons of your business, we can tailor the efficiencies and solutions that help turn your income into the outcome your business needs. Visit bidvestbank.co.za to learn more. Bidvest Bank. Banking built for your business. An authorized FSP and registered credit provider. When it comes to inverters nowadays, everybody needs one. With so many options, it's easy to be left in the dark. Don't stress, Chase Technologies is here to shed some light. I love who's written this. Chase inverters are powered by Mega Revo with a five-year warranty. And their lithium batteries have got a 10-year guarantee, a full 10-year guarantee. Not pro rata like others in the market. And best of all, Chase is a bit best company, so you know that your warranty is secure. Get your Chase products from Voltex stores nationwide. Chase Technologies, proudly. Invest. The Money Show. Consumer Ninja. Consumer Ninja, Wendy Nola on The Money Show. Uh, APSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. If your car is insured for personal use, and essentially uh, personal use means you've agreed with, uh, when you signed all those forms, you agreed that you would go to and from work. Drop the kids off at school. Do some shopping. That's personal use. But where does personal use start and stop? If you run a lift club with your friends, it is your personal use. But if you're asking your friends to contribute to the petrol money, does that still constitute personal use of now if you started a taxi service? Or if you get called to a conference in a faraway town and you drive to that faraway town and... You, you have an unfortunate incident like the Minister of Transport, for example. 
where your bodyguard has loses 37,000 rand in cash for his roof. Um, whatever the case might be, how are you protected on your insurance policy? Explain this concept, Wendy Nola, consumer ninja, of personal use because my personal use in my mind may be very different to what your uh, intention for personal use is and very different to what the insurance company who's covering the risk on our cars uh, interpretation of personal use is well exactly bruce that's the crux of this whole conversation hello um yeah so what got me thinking about it was I was investigating a repudiated stolen car claim recently and the complainant said that her insurer initially attempted to repudiate the claim on the grounds that she had been attending a business meeting at her local church when the car was stolen from the parking lot um, and she was able to prove that she was actually attending an art lecture and anyway, then the insurer dug a bit further and established that she had failed to call her tracking company at six monthly intervals to have them check that her unit was still functioning properly as it should, um, as the tracking contract required. And on the strength of that, they, they did repudiate her claim. But that's <sighs> another story for another day. So we're looking at, I know. So I read, I looked at this and I thought, I must look into this further because, I mean, if you... I have personal cover uh, on my car, right? Because you know, I don't use my car for business purposes. I, my thinking is I'm not a sales rep. Um, you know, I drive to Cape Talk and I drive home, so it, it's personal use. But what if I, you know, like this woman, she, she, you know, went to, say she did go to a meeting at the church or her local whatever. Say it was business related and they found out as they do. There's no wriggle room. Is it like a once or for once a month thing mm. and suddenly your claims repudiated? How terrifying. So I, um, <laughs> I've done some investigation and here are two cases which the Ombudsman for short-term insurance took up. So both in both cases, the insured person had personal cover on their cars and, and their claims were repudiated because in the first case, um, the woman used her um, – Rejected, her claim was rejected because um, she was a man. Uh, they, he was on his way to meet a friend for dinner to discuss a business proposition. I mean, how much digging would the insurance company, would the insurer have to do to come up with that? So the insurer argued that because he was not using the vehicle for personal use at the time of the incident, but driving to a business meeting at a location other than at his regular place of business, um, he didn't have cover for that incident. And in the second case, um, a work-from-home bookkeeper was delivering statements to a client and the insurance company rejected the claim on the grounds that, again, her car was being driven for business purposes and not for private use. And again, the Ombuds Office reject, uh, upheld the rejection because that's the, the insurer they said The definition in law, the definition policy. is clear. And when you sign a document and it says, I promise to use this only for personal use. In so many of our lives, the, the, the boundary between work and business and personal and life is a, is, is a, a moving... Uh, blurry. And, and very, very mm. blurry. And you also, once you've signed the documents, you don't necessarily go to the T's and C's exactly. every single time you're planning to use your car. But it's interesting that the ombud no. is saying no. You were wrong in this particular case. You bought a particular level of insurance because it was priced at a particular level and you agreed it would be only for personal use. If the company deems that it was for business use, They've, you've breached the T's and C's. 
Exactly. And I think also since since COVID and work from home, a lot of those lines are even more blurry now. So the definitions, basically, if you if you want to go for private use, which is obviously the lower premium, you can only drive to and from your regular place of employment. If you go to a conference, if you attend meetings away from the office, if you go to a training course, Bruce, or a, or a conference, if you go to the post office to collect something, I don't know who does that, but let's say a post <laughs> or something. You, you go to a in team. La, the lava in Lala la Land, yes. Lala <laughs> la Land, yeah. If you go to a team building event, who, I mean, we do that. If you go to a, 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 your company's end of your party and it's not in the office, you park outside a restaurant or whatever, not covered if your car gets stolen. If you have a, ver- a policy that has very, very strict definition around this. So it strikes me that a great many people who have insured their cars for personal use thinking, well, I'm not a sales rep. You know, I don't drive around in my car for business all day. So that's fine. They're at huge risk for having a claim for a stolen car or, or, or uh, um, in an accident not being covered. So anyway, I asked around um, uh, and I found out that some personal motor policies do have some wriggle room in them. So, for example, Christelle Coleman, CEO of AMI Underwriting Managers, shared with me her policy wording on this, which says domestic use, domestic being the same as personal, domestic purposes relating to vehicles means that you may use it for social and private travel, travel to and from work, as well as for travel, for business or occupational purposes once a week. If more than once a week, it cannot be covered under domestic use. And I think that's so fair. I, I, again, you know? it, it it creates room for blurriness, you know, and it just if, if you are somebody who does use your car to go to meetings, if you are somebody who uses your car to go to a conference and you're somebody who uses your car to pick up the kids at school, rather broaden the sphere of your of your insurance so that it covers more boxes that are ticked because I just think the risk is huge, particularly. And again, I, I, so I don't mean huge. to be I don't mean to be disparaging to um, the, the very innovative online guys who say, "Oh, you can sign up for insurance in two minutes." If you're ticking the wrong boxes in that rush to fill in the 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 the, the form in two minutes, you're going to miss this detail. I'm afraid. You're going to miss the detail. I also asked. Uh, I went to the ombudsman for short-term insurance. To, see what their view is. I mean, we I discussed those two cases. Uh, Senior Assistant Ombudsman Tasneem Darwood came back to me and gave me quite a comprehensive response, which boils down to, you know, if you're a direct marketer, you have to, uh, that agent on the, in the call center has to disclose this term to the insured. Um, and because, you know, it's very central to the risk and the premium, the risk on both parts. It really, it's really a very essential part of, of the policy, the, the, the terms of use. And she says if, it's, if you're getting your policy through a broker, then the broker must properly advise you of, of you know, the, the implications of that choice and that the insured must be transparent about the use of the vehicle. So I think in many cases, people... I, I know, I mean, it's a long time since I took, since I took out an, an insurance policy, but from my recollection, they were, it was just like, is it business or personal? And then you answer and they say, fine. I don't remember there being a discussion. Are you sure? Because if you ever go to a team building event yeah. or you go to… I don't recall that. You know, then I don't then recall maybe that you should… Yeah. Me neither. No, no. And… Um, yeah, so also, you know, you must read your policy, okay, we, we, those are our responsibilities. Um, and she said, we do, we consider each claim rejection on its merits, and this part I liked, we might 
um, the set of you know each particular set of facts might allow us to invoke our equity jurisdiction in deciding on this matter, and that means um, looking beyond the letter of the law, looking beyond the exact wording of that the policy on this personal versus business, they might feel that the insurer under the circumstances were un was unfair in, in repudiating a claim, um, depending on its merits. But um, And she did say, while it would be ideal for the insurer to allow the odd business trip on a private use policy, it is the insurer's prerogative as to the type of risk, risks which it will accept in line with its underwriting criteria. So bottom line, please, people, just Assume nothing. Read that use section of your policy very carefully. And if you do occasionally use your car for work purposes, other than driving to and from your office and only your office, your primary um, work location, then you must either have a you know, get yourself a personal use policy which allows for occasional, you know, business-related travel, or upgrade your policy to a business one. And yes, it will cost you more. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Tonight's shapeshifter wants to see more South African products in more places around the world. His name is Matthew Davey. He has created a startup uh, called Tunnel. Well, it's got only one vowel in it. T-U-N-L, pronounced Tunnel, focusing entirely on exports from South Africa. There are only two of them involved, but it's a personal mission. Um, and he sent me a note on LinkedIn the other day saying, we see so many great South African brands and we want to see more of these South African brands in more places. What's the motivation here, Matthew? Good evening. Hi, good evening, Bruce. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, a small little correction. Uh, I did start the business with uh, Craig, my co-founder, and he's been amazing, but we, we're now a team of 12 of us. Uh, 12? Two to 12? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're living the dream, aren't you? You're scaling like you want other South African businesses to scale. Yeah, in fact, we, uh, we're taking on uh, four interns next week, uh, you know, linked through another great startup in, in Cape Town. Um, no, so, yeah, uh, very keen to share more about what we're doing, and, and I think you nailed it on the head. Uh, we just want to see more brands, like brands that have been on your show, Sealand, Fieldbar, Islandway, Rolux. We just want to see them on the, on the global stage. They already have got some elements of global footprint, though. I mean, I've featured many of them in the Genius Podcast and the Genius Book um, and, of course, on the show as well. What is it about these South African products that you want to get into these markets uh, that you find so remarkable? I mean, I think we we bustling with entrepreneurs making amazing products, innovating uh, in, in all sorts of disciplines, in all sorts of sectors. Uh, and the ones that you've perhaps profiled have, have perhaps been the lucky ones. Uh, they've found a crack in the wall and, and found a way to, to shorten the distance to market. Uh, what we've seen, you know, we, we're currently shipping for 650 merchants. Uh, we've grown incredibly in the last six months. Uh, is that there's a lot of others who have never shipped overseas before, but have world-class products. Uh, we've helped them, you know, export for the first time. And there's many businesses, uh, you know, that are doing okay internationally. Uh, but it's not a focus of theirs because of the cost to get their products to their customers. In fact, many merchants uh, perhaps don't make that much margin on, on shipping, you know, on, on the sales that are going internationally. I mean, Sealand, for example, you'll be familiar with the story of Sealand and just chatting to the guys there. They, they actually made a decision to not put their products in international markets because just the the cost of logistics, the cost of putting as much stock as required when you've got a unique product like Sealand and the, the bags that are made from advertising hoardings and all sorts of other waste products, it actually became really expensive for them to do it. Not every product is as suited to a global reach, perhaps, uh, as others. 
<laughs> it's funny you bring up Sealand. Uh, in fact, they were our very, very first customer. Uh, we have a, a close relationship with uh, Jasper, Adrian, and the team at Sealand, and uh, we do all of their international fulfillment now. And uh, I mean, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but I think they are excited about expanding internationally wow. again together with us next year. Uh, it's a different strategy. I mean, I think what they're doing is, yes, they, their product is available overseas, but not stocking the shelves at Harrods and not stocking the shelves at Selfridges and stuff. I think that was the complication, was having to have the stock lines in international markets um, is, is, is what has been the problem. 100%. So I think what, what the, the solution that we're offering Sealand is the ability to really enter the direct-to-consumer market, which is, you know, a real leveler uh, in terms of the playing field. Uh, they can now make to order and ship to order globally uh, because the shipping cost is more affordable. So what is it that you guys do, Matthew? I mean, logistics is one part of a very complicated series of uh, transactions that have to happen in order to get your product that you make in a Cape Town, for example, whether it be Oryx Desert Salt or whether it be Sealand or whether it be um, Feldskun or whether it be Rolux Lawnmowers, which we've, we spoke to them recently breaking into the United States. Getting it to a, another country is the easy bit. Getting it into into market in those countries is what is complicated. Do you play a role in that? Yes, and I might push back a little bit on what you said there. Um, so we, you know, at present, the merchants know their business way better than we do. Uh, so their role, and that is re- really is the hard part, is, is finding the market. But there is a, a step bit before that happens, and that's being able to get your product to that market. Uh, and while you, th- you might suspect it's easy because there are providers, uh, the cost is prohibitive or typically can be prohibitive, especially when you're a small SME uh, and you don't have a lot of volume to negotiate with. So what we do in, in, sort of a, in a broad sense is, is we act like a tech-enabled shipping club and the larger our network becomes, the more we can offer our merchants in terms of features, but also in terms of the better rates that we can pass on. Uh, and I think, you know, I've, we've got hundreds of stories of, of merchants that, that write messages to us to say, I've been able to ship overseas for the very first time. Uh, and, you know, that's the first step in them being able to see the international market as, as potential for them. Well, what was the gap that you saw? I mean, you're a Rhodes Scholar. You, you, you've studied internationally, you've worked internationally, and, and you've come back to South Africa um, with this idea, with this idea of making it easier for local manufacturers to access global markets. It's a wonderful idea, but I wonder what your motivation was. Yeah, I, I felt the pain directly myself. I, I spent five years uh, after studying at Oxford uh, running a subsidiary of a, a fantastic South African manufacturing company uh, based in the Free State. Uh, they make engineering products. It's called Vesconite Bearings. Mm-hmm. And they'd found enormous success in diversifying their markets by growing in the US. And, and I set up uh, the, the Dutch company for replicating that success in Europe. And I found in those five years, I spent three quarters of my time dealing with logistics, uh, <laughs> negotiating uh, discounts and, and rates with, yeah. with couriers and warehouses and, and uh, ocean and sea fr- uh, air freight. Uh, so I felt that pain directly. And, and I thought, well, if, if this is a large company employing more than 100 people, they're feeling this pain. Uh, surely all businesses or you know, businesses that scale and small in South Africa are feeling similarly. 
South Africa is also not doing itself any favours at the moment in terms of imports and exports. The latest figure I've seen is ships sitting outside of our ports. Um, The number has risen to 97 um, and the waiting times. And we've seen the likes of the Mersks of the world say, look, uh, the normal offloading times around the world are four days. For every day you go over that, there'll be X thousand dollars in penalties that you have to pay because you're stopping our ships from offloading and going to do business elsewhere. So you will start paying fines. Our uh, failure of PortNet or or Transnet and its ports um, is is very significant. It must make your life that much more complicated. Yes, I suppose it does, Bruce. Uh, but, you know, I think we speak about some failures and there are dozens of challenges, uh, but I think we're a resilient country and uh, and entrepreneurs that we, you know, shipping products for display that every day. And we should also speak about the successes. I mean, one which is very important and, and close to us is, is the Cape Town Air Access Program. Uh, we send most of uh, our volume through air freight. And, uh, you know, the connectivity that we're experiencing out of Cape Town onto, you know, onto the world stage is, is fantastic. Um, we have direct flights into the U.S., which is our, one of our main trade lanes. And, uh, and I think I'd give a lot of kudos to, to Westgrow and all the parties involved in, yeah. in doing a good job there. No, absolutely. And you just look at the logistics hubs that have uh, b- popped up around the airport, certainly around the Cape Town airport. There's a huge, been a huge focus on air freight. But the, the idea of going by, by, by sea or by air, I mean, the, the economics of that are, are vastly different. How do you make it economically viable to use air freight as opposed to going over the ocean? Yeah, this is when it's, I think it's important to to drill into who we focused on serving. And, and uh, most of our customers are... Uh, you know, selling, you know, they have e-commerce sites uh, from small to large. Uh, so they, they, they're selling individual parcels to consumers uh, across the world. Um, and in that case, the transit time is, is quite critical. So air freight is is really, uh, you know, the way to go. Uh, courier, essentially anything that's going on a courier is essentially going air freight as well. So that's why we focused on that. Uh, we work with courier partners um, for some of our business. Uh, and then we also run our own you know, uh, proprietary courier service to America where we own the supply chain uh, together with partners. Uh, and that's pretty exciting. Uh, what, that pres- what that gives us is the ability to offer merchants like Sealand uh, the chance to send a parcel to any customer anywhere in the U.S. for 160 rand. Uh, which is How on earth do you get that right, though? I mean, I, I had to send a parcel internationally the other day. It was fairly heavy. It went through a, a global logistics firm, and I, I had to sell the family dog um, in, in order to afford the, <laughs> the the costs of shipping the blooming thing. It was it was a frightening figure, um, and it took three or four days to get there. I mean, it was an urgent parcel. It had to get there in a hurry. But it was I was I was astounded by the cost. Uh, I, I think I speak for a lot of uh, the merchants that we ship for in, in saying, you know, they, we, we agree with you. Um, I think uh, back to that shipping club idea, uh, you know, the, the bulk uh, rates that we are able to access uh, help tremendously. Uh, we also have employed some, uh, you know, business model approaches that have been successfully used uh, you know, from the east. Uh, so what we do is, is we run a supply chain uh, to America uh, and our technology is able to smart select uh, final mile couriers in the US. And so that's one of the most competitive domestic courier markets in the world. And, and we can allocate parcels onto very economical final mile delivery, which which makes up about half the cost. Uh, so yeah, we stitch that together. And, and really, I think the difference that we have is, is we're building for, you know, the South African market. We're seeing we're seeing potential. We're not seeing, uh, you know, an ex- extractive market. I think we, we want to partner with merchants on their growth trajectory. 
But this is a fundamental shift then for the economics of export out of South Africa. If you are a manufacturer of products in South Africa and you want to reach international markets, previously you had to go to a country, you had to go to their trade shows, you had to make friends with the distribution channel, you had to get your product from point A to point B, you then had to ensure that your your entire supply chain was supplied by you. Now, if you are making a fairly high margin product, you're able to advertise on your e-commerce site, uh, put it on your e-commerce site, advertise on uh, where, where you choose to go, whether it be LinkedIn or Instagram or wherever, get it into the public consciousness that there is this beautiful thing. People come and search and buy on your website like they would on any other e-commerce site. And then the fulfillment becomes an, af- an affordable fulfillment. And it, it, it's not for every single product. It's, it, it's going to be hard to do it for a bottle of wine, perhaps for a bottle of Tassis or a bottle of Chateau Libertas. It's, the economics might not work. But for something manufactured and, and fairly high end this feels like a, a great solution it is no i think uh, you've hit the nail on the head um we have examples of, of merchants who uh, used to uh, warehouse their products in the u.s and and if you step back and look at what it takes to yeah to get there they would have to forecast demand uh, manufacture items sink capital into doing that put the put the goods in containers on sea freight that takes another three months uh, where you're not seeing revenue uh, pay the import duties, warehouse it, and, and then you know when the sales made, uh, you start seeing revenue. So we've had merchants who've been able to shift their whole approach to make to order and ship to order, uh, dramatically reducing the time that their capital is locked up. Um, and there is a, a really another you know important piece here in in the link between innovation and commercialization. Uh, you know, there's fantastic innovation, but there's the step required uh, you know between Having a great product, you know, a great uh, innovation, and you know, getting it to potential buyers overseas, and that's sending samples. Uh, and I think we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg at the moment in our business, uh, but it's something we're excited about. And there's this, you know, uh, the Stellenbosch Nanofiber f- uh, Company, for instance, is is one of our merchants who sends samples with us, uh, and and they have application globally. But the, the challenge they had uh, before working with us was it was costing them an arm and a leg to get those samples on mm. time, uh, deliver duty paid to a potential buyer because they need to have that uh, slick experience. Um, and so that's something that we, you know, I think we're, we're seeing a, an important role going forwards as well. Talking to Matthew Davy, Chief Executive or Co-Founder at Tunnel, T-U-N-L. Just gone on to the site. I see the way it works. I'm going to pick up with him further in just a moment in terms of the complexity, of course, of global trade and being able to give 650 South African merchants access to international markets in a way where they don't have to set up shop on the other side of the world and carry massive levels of stock on the other side of the world, which comes with cost, complexity and difficulty. Um, changing the way in which South Africa is able to participate immediately and actively in an e-commerce world. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Absis CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you the money show. APSA is a registered FSP. I want to connect two dots for you this evening. Grant Patterson, earlier on the money show, Grant, Deputy Director of the Localization Support Fund, telling us there's 200 million rand available for companies that want to create 
products domestically and locally. In other words, broaden South Africa's industrial base. That's the idea. It's not been the best supported of the sectors, and it's remarkable that we have um, as many companies as we do looking to access international markets. But doing so is costly. It's time-consuming. And that's what uh, has begun began an obsession for Matthew Davy, who worked for a ball-bearing distributor business or manufacturer in the free state. These things are heavy. They've got a low center of gravity. And of course, it's blooming expensive to get your ball bearings into global markets. And so he spent most of his time negotiating contracts, which he found incredibly tedious. So now he's taking away that level of pain and negotiating it for 650 other people. Uh, paint a picture for me, please. I mean, do you have like a, a container sitting at the airport, Matthew, where you put in three sealant bags, two lawnmowers, 100 pairs of feldskun and a, a carefully packed box of Island Way sorbet, for example, all in to the same sort of uh, container that gets then airlifted from here to Atlanta or Orlando or wherever it might go. And then you deal with the logistics on the other side. Is that sort of vaguely a picture of how it might work? <laughs> it is vaguely a picture. Um, so we, we run our own supply chain to the US, which we call uh, tunnel economy. It it's kind of fills the gap between your sort of postal service, which doesn't really exist now, uh, yep. isn't viable for e-commerce and, and your express courier. And and the picture you painted is, is you know quite quite applicable to that. We have a, a warehouse space in Pardon Island and we have merchants from across South Africa who make the use of that service. Uh, and if they're in Cape Town, they come drop off their parcels with us once a week. And if they're elsewhere, they, they send them to us. Uh, and we, we put those on air freights. We do the customs clearance out of South Africa into the US and, and we do the delivery and it's, it's all wrapped up in a, an end-to-end -end tract. Uh, there's an insurance option. Uh, it's a really easy user interface to, to get that booked. Um, and that's one part of our business. And, uh, you know, the US is only one market and, and all of these merchants are selling globally. So we also have partnerships with, uh, with a few of the, the major express carriers where we act as the sort of uh, broker the shipping club uh, bringing the rates down for everybody uh, and that can also be booked directly on our sites at, at really good rates for everybody and and the sort of convenience factor there is, is they'll come to you know the merchant's front door and pick up the parcel and, and take it off I mean, I look at your website and you you blatantly say you can save up to 83% off FedEx and UPS rates with uh, your your shipping software. And that's all well and good. And it could be a T-shirt, it could be a shoebox or a poster tube. So you go for, for fairly heavy stuff, fairly light stuff, fairly large, fairly small. Um, is there anything stopping me from taking my next box of trinkets that I need to move internationally and drop them off with you and you do it on a consumer to consumer basis or just for a consumer to move their junk across the world? Or does it have have to be a business-to-business -business transaction. I, I think you're speaking to to an area that we are exploring. Um, you know, we have sent personal uh, shipments. There's a, there isn't technically anything stopping us, but uh, it does come back to our mission and and our focus. Uh, and I think what's driving myself and, and driving my my amazing co-founder Craig is is really creating value, uh, creating you know jobs through a sort of a scalable approach uh, you know where, where other merchants are able to grow and, and bringing in foreign income and, and that's coming through from from businesses that are trying to grow uh, so we just well, want to play a role in that what sort of volumes are we talking about you got 650 uh, south african producers of things um from desk stand to other uh, companies including versus and 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 all sorts of people and artists everybody's i mean look, using these sorts of services to get their product to international markets are we talking about a, a ton a week 10 tons a week 100 tons a year what is it uh 
in, in, in our one service that, that where we sort of handle the products, we're talking close to a ton a week, uh, and that's that's hundreds sure. of small parcels. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, I'd say then uh, outside of that with what's going with FedEx and UPS is, is probably closer to a ton and a half, two tons a week. Uh, it's so, astonishing. Yeah, and, and I think uh, yeah, this is this is exciting. I mean, to Black Friday is coming up this week, so it's, oh, it is smack <laughs> in the middle of peak season for us. Um, but but the the technology we've built, uh, uh, you know, especially how it's matured over the last six months, so that's doing the bulk of the heavy lifting. Um, we've done I think four hundred parcels uh, through uh, our, pl- our platform in the last few days, and, and we expect you know upwards of six hundred over the weekend. Uh, so just to give it a sense of scale, but the rate at which we're growing is is I think the the sort of important part here. I think this is this is all sort of uh, three to four x in the last six months. Uh, and so, I mean, how long have you actually been going? We started testing about two years ago, uh, but, right. but really um, actively in the markets uh, since uh, you know, the sort of middle part of last year. And how's the, the startup hustle? I mean, is this your first one? I would say it's my first uh, scalable startup. I, I was working in a, you know in an industrial company before uh, for Craig as well. Uh, similarly. Um, we connected while he was finishing his MBA, and uh, I appreciate that he's got that experience. Um, but yeah, you know there, there are ups and downs. I think uh, early, earlier this year, the startup hustle was was less rosy, and and I think a, a shout out to you know fellow founders in the ecosystem here in Cape Town and 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 family for for the support. Um, but it's amazing how when you do it, you say thank you for the support, and that's all well and good. But it is amazing how when you provide a service that people need and you provide a product that people want, um, they it well word spread, spreads. I mean, I don't think you advertise; it's all word of mouth stuff, isn't it? We we do reach out directly to to merchants. Uh, that's that's helped get us going. But uh, most new signups now are coming from customer referrals and, and a bit of social media presence. But uh, you know we we we're not doing any paid advertising of any sort uh, because the demand is there. It, it's a it's a wonderful story that you've shared with us this evening, Matthew. And thank you for doing that bit that you do um, to help uh, companies reach international markets and make it affordable for um, the hustlers in South Africa's economy, the guys who uh, create wonderful, uh, authentic, original products for a South African market. Then go, hold on a second, but other people may like this in other parts of the world. We've spoken to the Rolex guys and um, the Feltskun guys, and they really are working very hard to get their products accepted in new markets. And this is one way, just one of the legs, I suppose, of how they will access markets uh, via Matthew Davy and Tunnel. Uh, it's, uh, pr- it's pronounced Tunnel, spelled the proper yeah. way, but spelled on all of the merchandising is T-U-N-L, focusing on exports entirely from South Africa 